And on the eighth day, God looked down at his creation and said, I need a caretaker. I need someone who will get up early, leave their family, not knowing that they'll return all day, and serve the needs of others diligently and wholeheartedly. So God made a first responder. God said, I need someone who will sit up all night and watch so others don't have to, and be the first one on the scene of a crime so others can rest easy, knowing that they have nothing to worry about, someone to patrol the back roads and highways. So God made a first responder. I need someone strong enough to fight fire, chase cars, and stare death in the face. Someone who's willing to live life by the sound of the alarm and the call, ready to go at a moment's notice, able to push any fear they personally have aside in order to calm the fear of others, marching into danger itself. So God made a first responder. God said, I need someone who will take an oath of integrity, character, and loyalty to public trust. Someone who can calm a tense situation using just words. Someone strong enough to see broken bones, severed limbs, and spilled blood, yet maintain a calm demeanor so the patient knows everything will be okay. I need someone brave enough to speak to a mother, a father, a brother or sister, and tell them their loved one won't be coming home. So God made a first responder. And when the job got the toughest, and when the call seemed too much to bear, God needed someone who would get up the next day, put on a uniform, with zeal in their eyes, and a passion to serve, and do it all over again. So God made a first responder. I want to thank our uh, mission intern, Mike Collins, for uh, putting that together and putting forth the effort uh, to do that. I've been privileged to be around first responders long enough now to know that for many of you, your work is not just a job. It's not just something that you do to put food on the table. To you, it really is a calling. And in your heart, you truly believe that God created you specifically for your role as a first responder. And church, I hope that you pray for these men and women on a regular basis. And watching that video, can I just encourage you to do this as well? Pray for their families. First responder families make sacrifices that many of us we just don't we just don't make and like the spouses and children of 
our military men and women, the spouses and children of first responders, they make their own unique sacrifices. So let's, let's pray for them on a regular basis. If you have access to a Bible this morning, I want to invite your attention to the New Testament book of Philippians, chapter 1. Book of Philippians, chapter 1, they say there is a very thin line between a long sermon and a hostage situation. (laughs) And so I'll try to hurry this morning the best I can. First responders are hailed as heroes. And rightly so, because they're taxed with the responsibility of running toward danger when it seems that everybody else is is running from it. But in the midst of all of the laud and honor and praise that I think they rightly deserve and probably don't get near enough, let's remember this morning that they're also human And their work takes a toll on both their physical and their mental health. I was reminded recently by way of some chaplain materials that I received, I was reminded of an elephant in the first responder room. It's there, but it's not something that we really like to talk about it's not addressed very often and i don't mean to be somber and morbid this morning and and stay with me i'm I'm headed somewhere but it's the it's the issue of suicide the number of suicides among the men and women in the first responder community is alarming And I think to a great degree, we've been blessed in our city and our county with respect to that. And and I don't want to get all bogged down in a bunch of of, of statistics because the truth of of it is most of those numbers are, are artificially low anyway. But here's a fact this morning. First responders are more likely to die from suicide than they are to die in the line of duty. And we could have some lengthy discussions this morning about why someone would decide to take their own life. But the truth that lies at the heart of each of those unfortunate situations is this. Somehow, they came to the sad conclusion that life just isn't worth living. And it's for that reason that I want to preach to you this morning on this subject, how to have a life worth living. I'm privileged to come in contact with hundreds of people during the week and many hundreds of people throughout the course of a month. And it seems to me, 
And I may have this totally wrong, but it seems to me that the greater number of them, whether they're in the first responder community or civilians, it doesn't matter, it seems to me that the greater number of them seem to be enduring life instead of enjoying it. And I find this true whether they profess to be a a, a Christian or, or whether they don't. I interact with a lot of people who just aren't very happy. They seem to live with a a win-then philosophy. When my candidate gets in office, then I'll be happy. When the economy picks up, then I'll be happy. When my investments start earning then I'll be happy. When I get married, then I'll be happy. When I get divorced, then I'll be happy. When I have kids, then I'll be happy. When the kids I have leave home, (laughs) then I'll be happy. When the brass finally gets their act together, then I'll be happy. When I can change shifts, then I'll be happy. And I could go on and on and on. The Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Philippians, was a man who learned that life is always, always worth living, regardless of how difficult it becomes. His life prior to writing this letter to these Philippian Christians was not an easy life, to say the least. He spent two years in prison in Caesarea on trumped-up charges. And I know, I know, you hear it all the time. I didn't do it. I'm innocent. I shouldn't be in here. It's somebody else's fault. I get that. But read the book of Acts, and you'll find out that that was true for Paul. He was then put onto a ship to go to Rome where he was supposed to appear before Nero who was not known for his niceties toward Christians. On the way, the ship wrecked. Paul was stranded on an island and one night he was sitting by a fire with some others and he was bitten by a poisonous snake. Then once he got to Rome... He spent two years in prison awaiting his trial and ultimate crucifixion. During that two-year period in Rome, he was chained to a guard 24 hours a day. He had no privacy whatsoever. Every four hours, he got a new guard. So it was none of this hook them, book them, and throw them in a pod somewhere. Yet in spite of Of these less than favorable circumstances, he was able to write in verse 18 of Philippians chapter 1, Notwithstanding, I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. (laughs) Say, preacher, what's what's that all about? I mean, if what you just said about this guy is true... How in the world could he write about rejoicing? What what was his secret? 
I believe his secret was four foundational truths that he shares with us in this first chapter. Truths that I think we would all do well to learn if we are going to experience a life worth living. And here's the first one. You need the right perspective to live from. Would you allow me just a moment to make a very obvious statement? We all have problems. No, I mean all of us. We all have problems. And no doubt there are some here today. And and by the way, church, I'm not just preaching to our first responder guest. I'm preaching to the whole house today. And I'm going I'm to venture to guess that there's somebody in the house today who's facing some monumental struggles, and you brought those with you today. But I would submit to you this morning that your problems aren't as important as your perspective. If you have a Bible, look at verse 12, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12. If you don't, don't worry about it, it'll be on the screen. Paul said, But I would, ye should understand, brethren, that the things, the things he's talking about is what I mentioned a moment ago, being shipwrecked, being stranded on an island. By the way, he had to wait out the winter there. He was bitten by a poisonous snake. Those are the things he's talking about. But I would, ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather or have resulted in the furtherance of the gospel. So Paul managed to see the best even in the worst. He was able to see the hand of God working in the midst of his difficulties. And then he goes on to write this in verse 13, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Now let me take just a a moment and explain what Paul meant by that verse. We know from his earlier writings that he had always wanted to go to Rome. I mean that was in his heart and and what he had envisioned was was a a, a huge preaching crusade and in which thousands and maybe even tens of thousands of men and women would come to faith in Christ. That's what he envisioned when he got to Rome. Well, when he did get to Rome, there wasn't any crowds welcoming him. There wasn't any huge preaching crusades. He was thrown in prison. And he was chained to a palace guard. But watch this. We know from history that these guards were not your everyday run-of-the-mill guards. These men were personally chosen by the emperor. They were the highest paid people in the empire. And after they retired at the end of 12 years, they were made leaders in Rome. So there was not a more strategic group that Paul could have been chained to if he was going to reach the Roman Empire with the gospel. So check this out. God put Paul in Rome, Nero paid the bill, and then chained a future leader of the empire to Paul every four hours. Now, if my math is right, and and, and if it's not, I know some of our people will no doubt correct me right after church. 
they're that way. But if my math is right, in two years at four-hour shifts, Paul was given 4,380 opportunities to witness of his faith in one-on-one conversation. Remember, this guy was chained to Paul. Where was he going? In turn, these guards had an inside route to the emperor, and as a result, we read elsewhere in the scriptures that even some of Nero's family became believers. You've heard it said before that your outlook determines your outcome, and never was that more true than in Paul's life. Because Paul chose to view his situation as a possibility instead of a problem, he was able to spread the gospel throughout the entire Roman Empire, including the house of the emperor. So here's the first lesson we learned this morning. With the right perspective, nothing should discourage us. With the right perspective, nothing should discourage us. But a life worth living consists of more than that. It also includes the right priority to live by. Something that I have found true in my own life personally is this. If I don't decide what's important in my life, someone else will decide for me. And without fail, without fail, when I allow others to determine my priorities, and I'm just speaking for myself this morning, I lose my focus, my perspective changes, and what should be molehills become mountains. In Paul's situation, not only was he in prison, but there were preachers on the outside driven by jealousy and driven by envy who were taking advantage of his absence and they were criticizing him and they were attacking his ministry. But I want you notice what, what, how Paul responded in verse 18. He said, what then? Or what does it matter? Or so what? Yeah, I know what's going on, I hear about it, but it doesn't matter because the gospel is being preached. And for that, I rejoice. Paul refused to let those men dictate his priority. The priority of Paul's life was the spread of the gospel. And as long as it was being done, he was not going to involve himself in a bunch of trivial pursuits and petty arguments. And how many times do we allow trivial, petty things to steal our joy and to distract us from the really important things in life? Let's learn another lesson here from Paul about a life worth living. Let's learn this, that with the right priorities, nothing can distract us. So if you want a life worth living, you need a perspective to live from. You need a priority to live by. And then here's a third thing real quick. You need the right power to live on. 
I mean, let's face it. Life can flat wear you out. Right? I would not be surprised at all if I were to visit with some here today and they were honest with me, they would look me right in the eye and they'd say, I'm done. Preacher, I'm done. I'm tired. I'm worn out. I'm frustrated. I'm ready to just chunk it all. And listen to me, I get it. I really do. Life stinks sometimes. Doesn't matter who you are. Life is hard. And you're at your wit's end this morning and you just don't know what to do about whatever it is that you're dealing with right now. It could be a lousy job. It could be failing health. It could be difficult children. It it could be a, a troubled marriage. It could be floundering finances. It could be any number of of seemingly hopeless situations. I get it. But before you give up on things altogether, can I just try and encourage you with something that Paul said in verses 19 and 20? Look at verse 19. For I know that this, again, here's his perspective. He's chained to a guard, and he's got all of these things going on, and there are men on the outside that are trying to destroy his ministry, and he can't do anything about it. And he says, I know that this, these struggles, he said, I know that they will ultimately, let's see if it believes, turn to my salvation through your prayer. And the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my, what's that last word, church? Hope. Paul had hope. In prison, chained to a guard, 24 hours a day, men on the outside, running him down, trying to destroy everything that he had worked to establish. And yet Paul says, I have hope hope (laughs) and I would submit to you this morning that his hope was based on two things number one the prayers of his friends and number two the power of the Holy Spirit now you may not be a spiritual person here this morning and, and that's fine I am and I'm speaking from experience When I say that the prayers of my friends have gotten me through some very difficult times. And I'm talking recently. And you get a phone call at 9 o'clock at night. And it's your daughter-in-law on the other end. And she tells you that your son is dead. You need friends. And to be honest, I don't know what my wife and I, I don't know what our family would have done 
and the hours and the days and the weeks following the death of our son if it were not for our praying friends all over the country. And in essence, here's what Paul said. He said, I know that I can make it because I have people praying for me. Sometimes we don't want to burden others with our problems, especially as first responders, heroic type, rough and tough. We don't want anybody to think that in any way, shape, or form that we're weak or that we can't make life on our own or that we need anything but ourselves. I get that. I understand that. Would you listen to me this morning? Not only are you robbing yourself of some help that could be yours by just pulling somebody aside, saying, hey, would you pray for me? And I'm thankful I get texts often from many of you, many of you that are sitting here today, first responders, say, preacher man, would you pray for me? Would you pray for my family? I love to do that. I love it. But not only are you robbing yourself of some help, but you're also robbing people like me who enjoy praying for you. You're robbing us of the blessing of getting to be a part of your life. Listen, don't be afraid to recruit some spiritual help. Preacher man, would you just pray for me? I don't know if it works or not, but just pray for me. Well, I'll tell you this, it works. And I'd love to pray for you. Paul relied heavily on the prayers of others. And there was one other thing that he mentions in this verse, and it was the, it was the power of the Spirit. Here's God's answer to your personal energy crisis. It's not another monster. Here's God's answer to your personal energy crisis. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. In the same letter of the Philippians, and, and many of you that know your Bible and you've been in church, you, you know this verse. Later in the book of Philippians, uh, Paul wrote in chapter 4 that classic verse that we, that we off, often use and have seen all over the place. He said this, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. So listen to me this morning. You can cope with all of the things that I listed a moment ago. A lousy job and failing health and difficult children and a troubled marriage and floundering finances. Listen, you can cope with all of that through Christ. Unfortunately, some choose to cope with their struggles by means of other things. I'm just telling you, there's nothing more effective than a vibrant relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. So with the right perspective, nothing can discourage us. And with the right priorities, nothing can distract us. Now let's add to that this truth real quick. With the right power, 
nothing can defeat us. So if you want to have a life worth living, you need to get plugged into the right power sources, which in my opinion is Christ and the church. And then there's one other essential for a life worth living. You need the right purpose to live for. The right purpose to live for. Look at verse 21. Paul said, for me to live is Christ. If I were to hand out a piece of paper this morning, and on that paper it said, for me to live is, and then there was a blank. How would you fill in that blank this morning? There are no doubt some who would, and I have observed this through my interaction with them and just observing their lives, there are some who would say, for me to live is possessions, things, stuff. I mean, that's where it's at for them. And I can just have more stuff, if I can have more things. And these are the people that nearly kill themselves trying to keep up with the Joneses. And about the time they get caught up, wouldn't you know it, the Joneses refinance. And the race is all, all over again. You and I both know people whose entire life is about the pursuit of things, new things, nice things, big things, fast things, smart things, fun things, things that go bang. I mean, they're convinced that these things are what's going to bring fulfillment and keep them happy. And they do for a while. Until somebody comes up with something newer and nicer and bigger and faster and smarter and more fun. Stuff is not the right answer. Someone else might say for me to live is pleasure. And these are the people who are convinced that just one more party or one more partner or one more this or one more that is going to do it. It's going to satisfy them. But again, the truth is pleasure is not where it's at either. Not for the long haul anyway. Well, if the answer is not possessions and the answer is not pleasure, then it must, it, 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 it must be power. Or it must be position or promotion. Yeah, that's it. For me to live is power. For, for me to live is position. For, for me to live is promotion. Wrong, wrong, and wrong. For me, for you, for us to live is Now listen, without question, it is the Lord's will that you have a life worth living. He created you. He designed you. 
and it's His will. Regardless of who you are, it's His desire for you to have a life worth living. But in order to do that, I contend that we must live with these four essentials in mind that we've just talked about. The right perspective to live from, the right priority to live by, the right, whoop, got that in there twice, got that in there three times. It must be important. The right power to live on and the right purpose to live for. Listen, you will not experience joy until you start to live for a purpose greater than yourself. And that's hard to do in a self-centered, me-focused culture in 2018. But you and I have got to learn to live by a purpose that is greater than ourselves. And here's why. Because life is not judged by duration. It is judged by donation. Let me say that again. Life is not judged by duration. It's judged by donation. So quit giving first-class allegiance to second-class causes. Causes which will only serve to betray you in the end. Start investing your time and energy and effort in things eternal. Because the truth is, you're going to spend more time, listen, you're going to spend more time on the other side of this life than you will spend on this side. Did you get that? This life is temporal. That life is eternal. That's another reason why you should be able to say today, for me to live is Christ. Because He is the way, the truth, and the life. And if we have any hope of spending our eternal existence in heaven with God, it's going to be because we've received His Son as our Lord and Savior. The Bible's very clear when it says in 1 John chapter 5, and this is the record, that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Now, Brother Dustin, bring that up, would you please? It's not in there, all right. Listen, God, in, in those verses, God clearly divides all of mankind into two groups. So let's, let's forget this whole of mankind thing. Let's just, let's just talk about us. God groups all of us in here this morning into do, two very simple groups. There are the haves and the have-nots. And I'm not talking about material things talking about spiritual things. There are those who have a personal relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, and there are those who don't have that kind of relationship. 
And here's what I want you to understand this morning, and I'm done. It really doesn't matter what a person has in this life if they don't have Jesus in the life to come. Would you pray with me today?